What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Nadim Mazin. He's our first politician, but I'm using politician with air quotes because Nadim is anything but your typical politician. I don't think we're going to have many on the podcast, to be honest. First of all, because we don't know that many. Second of all, because I'm not sure our forum is really that germane to what they would like to get out of it or what we would like to get out of these conversations. But Nadim is not your traditional politician. He's young, he's filled with enthusiasm and bright ideas, and he's made a music video for OK Go. I'm not sure how many politicians can say that. But he's been very active since being elected to the Cambridge, Massachusetts City Council in things like technology entrepreneurship, um, parking, (laughs) affordable housing, and uh, bringing the arts to the community and uh, prioritizing the arts, which is something I think Chris and I think is important in a urban community and in any place where you want to have a thriving cultural city life. So Nadim is doing that, and it was kind of interesting and maybe a little bit disheartening to know that there really wasn't a politician in my city, in Cambridge, that was really doing that before him. So he deserves a lot of props. We had a pretty wide-ranging interview, um, so we're just going to get right into it because we talk about a lot of stuff that I think people are going to be interested in hearing about. Keep your eye on Nadim. He's going places. Everybody, um, thanks for tuning in. The podcast is brought to you, as always, by our friends at the Greenpoint Racket Club. Contact them for all your video-making needs. Um, Here we go. Nadim Mazin. Nimblebot. Is this still Nimblebot, this room? Yeah, this it's, tiny room? it's totally Nimblebot. This is the whiteboard room. <laughs> We're here with uh, Nadim Mazin, Cambridge City Councilor and man of many hats. And he's so busy that he starts off the day by putting on his right shoe and then picking a different shoe. For my left shoe? Yeah. Two th- color shoes today. These are like my work boot shoes. I, I used to actually wear them as two separate colors. When they were new, but now that they're old and ratty, I just kind of stick them on as slippers when I need to jump out and do paint and whatever work. <laughs> Various things. Various things. Let me make sure. Are we running here? I think we're... Yeah, we're running. We're running. We're good. Yeah. So, um, my first question is, what happens here? What happens I've, at you Nimblebot? You've described to me Nimblebot <laughs> a few times, and I, I'm still like, so what do these people do? We're a, we're a digital creative agency and we do um, software and apps and things and animations and explainer videos, mostly for advocacy organizations and medium-sized nonprofits that typically wouldn't be able to afford that type of work. And so we see ourselves doing top-line work, but for kind of non-profit or advocacy org prices, and we do some pro bono stuff as well. So, like, what are some of those, you know, companies or organizations? Do they approach you, or you sort of seek them out? Both. Um, we're working for a couple trade associations in D.C. that are doing uh, tech advocacy work. We're working with the United Way on everything from um, backpack lunch programs to volunteer engagement. Um, we're doing a um, hawk and birds of prey conservancy mobile app. Um mm-hmm. 
we are... What is that like? What does that entail? Um, it entails, like, you know, <laughs> bird watchers are very avid and um, spotting and... Um, Collecting and kind of having a database of their spines. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's not just that. Um, that. That's part of it, but it's mostly, like, being able to identify the different types and being able to use conservators' um, photo and video archive data in the field in an app format to actually be able to figure out what you're seeing as a lay, as a lay person. Cool. So how do you guys do it for, like, organizations that you say, like, might not have a lot of money to put into that kind of resource? How are you sort of doing it on, on the shoestring budget for them? They usually have some budget, right? And so there's a hard line. And so a, a company will say, like, we want to do an app for, like, $15,000. And then they'll shop around, and they'll, they'll generally settle on a price point. They'll come to us and say, we want to do an app that we know ought to cost 80 and we want to do it for 15. Right. And then we'll say, okay, 15 might be a little aggressive. See if you can take the 15 you have and raise another whatever, and they'll come back, and they'll say, done, instantly. Like, but just cool. We thought 80 was too crazy, but you know, 25 wasn't, right. or 23, or whatever it is that we agree on. And then we basically, you know, with certain gigs, just try to break even, but with most gigs, try to clear enough profit to keep the doors open and, and pay people. Um, for the longest time, I didn't take a salary and still don't. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just started taking a small commission on the pieces I bring in. But for the most part, Nimblebot is a conduit to bring in nonprofit dollars, provide an excellent service, and make sure that young, talented animators and coders are employed. Um, and these are mostly local companies, or you said some are in D.C.? I mean, it kind of I would say they're mostly the not local companies. The local companies we've been helping out have been the pro bono gigs in Cambridge and Boston where we're helping tell a brief Kickstarter story or some other thing on... Have you ever seen, like, a whiteboard explainer video? Do you see the person's hand and they're sketching out a yeah, story yeah. as mm-hmm. you go? Yeah, yeah so we, we do that style, and either interns or employees are trying to help them tell their... Like their beautiful story of service in that format. And how many people are under you or are part of the company yeah. at this point? Are part of Nimblebot. So Elisa's managing director here. Aaron will be the the new managing director as Elisa goes back to to school. Um, but um, at that point, it'll be one, two, three, four, five, six full time employees and three interns for this term. I, I will note that like a lot of companies in this field rely on interns and do their for-profit work with interns, which is illegal. And we, we basically only do community service and nonprofit work with interns. And um, we're trying to show that you can have a creative studio and you can have um, very high-caliber work and still remain afloat um, in this model. And, and as we begin to make a little more money um, and grow this year, not only can we invest in growth, but I think we can also show that a model like this could be profitable. So even if someone does all they want is money, there's still a way to employ people and not take advantage of interns in, in this industry. Yeah, it's interesting how much interns have become kind of part of the creative landscape as not just people that are getting experience but are being leaned on to like do more of the actual work. It's like, well, someone should probably be paid to be doing, you know, those kinds of in, things. In fact it's illegal. Like once you're yeah. in the once you're in the dollar flow and you're an unpaid intern that that you've kind of crossed a, um, a line there. Um, you can't be part of projects that have commercial value. The whole point of an internship is supposed to be for the value and the benefit of the intern, him or herself. Right. Now, the company that you started before that, which was what I sort of first... Well, first of all, we know each other from middle school, mm-hmm. which, which you still don't quite remember, I don't think. But <laughs> we were in like a student government thing. And oh I think gosh. you were... What year did you graduate high school? Uh, high school, I was 2002. Yeah, so you were like in eighth grade, and I was in sixth. 
And uh, and your dad works at Suffolk. Does yeah, he st- is he still there? He's still there. And yeah, my dad worked there for a long time. Negotiation. Yeah, I remember he because uh, your dad used to take the train. Yeah, and uh, my dad would say hello to McGee every day. That was like the one guy that my dad would be awake enough to say hello to. He's <laughs> like, oh, that's his son is from lives in you know they live in Andover, and uh, he's like very popular teacher, very influential teacher. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. we go back that far, and then I I heard about uh, you know Danger Awesome, which is a a laser cutting. Well, you can explain a little bit about it. and what what was the idea behind Danger Awesome, and I guess you know once you can kind of explain to our audience like what it does, how did that sort of transition into opening sure. up this second company? Well, I think that... Um, so, first of all, they, they actually started at the, kind of the same time, so I'll, I'll go through the journey yeah. here. Yeah. Um, in undergrad, I was mechanical and biological engineering. In grad school at MIT, I was um, basically neuroscience in a neuroscience lab. And I was in the media lab where all kinds of other interactive stuff is going on. And... Um, I began using laser cutters and 3D printers, and I'll explain what that is in a second. But basically, you're encouraged at the Media Lab just to make. Like, don't think about it. Just make some stuff and test it out and get your hands on it, and then step back and think about the theory and the programming and the practice and all that stuff and the consumer and the society. Um, But, like, get your hands dirty. I loved that, and I thought, like, that's how I meant to be. So I I did more and more of that type of stuff. then I kind of started to wonder, like, how is this not available to everyone? This is a great yeah. ethos that these it's people only have at set the up. Universities, <laughs> yeah, it's not just at, at, at universities, but it's like not at many universities. Yeah. It's not at many companies. So we, my friend Ali Muhammad and I, um, kind of engineered this idea, this scheme, where we would approach um, OK Go, viral music video champions, oh, yeah. and we would offer to direct a video based on stop motion paper or stop motion toast or something weird. And they went for the stop-motion toast idea. And as part of the budget, we would get these laser cutters. And we got them, and we did this video, and it's 3,000 pieces of toast in consecutive order, each one laser. And this is what year? This is 2008 or nine. Okay. I think we started this process, and maybe 10, we published the video. Yeah. Um, Had you done any music videos or any kind of animation before that? So this kind of fits into how these companies started. I was obsessed with flash animation and had found that it was enough to fund a Mongol rally trip for me and my friends from England to China raising money for charity. And like I had paid for all the visas and the car and all this stuff for four people and travel costs with two days of animation. And so at that time, I think there was a great thirst for flash animation. Yeah. And so I had like personally been able to use passing... Like animation skills I'd picked up in passing to, to do that and I never thought about like oh this could be lucrative I thought yeah. like this is useful for telling stories right. um, ended up funding that Mongol rally trip ended up um, largely um, procuring the laser cutters and the other equipment we needed and the costs for interns from different Samsung and OK Go finagling and then when we had the machines I thought wow we can't help but put them in a storefront. We have to bring them to the masses. It has to be about accessibility. It has to be about downtown, about mass transit. It has to be about, like, if everyone can do this, if that's the pedagogical um, ethos that I have and that other people are beginning to recognize, then someone actually has to do it. Yeah. Um, I think... It should have been done by someone wealthy, right? Because I'm realizing that to start a business, you have to already be wealthy in America. And that's, like, a really big problem I have and one of the social justice aspects I talk about on council the most. It's like, are we going to subsidize our ground floor retail in major urban environments? 
or are we just going to have the same um, big chain businesses? Or if there is a, a smaller chain or a mom and pop, they're either they've been there forever and they just they made it, right. or um, they were already wealthy and like someone wants to start a restaurant or start like a um, a gift store or something. And it's like yeah. you talk to them, it's like, how did you get your money for this? And it's like, oh, I just brought like three four hundred k down from the retirement account. Yeah. And I just did. And it's like, yeah. oh great, because you have a retirement account, <laughs> yeah. and people like me will never have yeah. a retirement yeah. account. I have to make my good luck now. Yeah happened for myself and so you know the the community came together around Danger Awesome and we've kickstarted various expansion projects and, and is that how like, Danger Awesome initially got the funding was through Kickstarter or crowds? No or it got the funding just through OK Go you know OK, OK Go project, yeah. yeah gave us these this equipment and then everything else was like by hook or by crook and once again I relied on animation and web development to fund the early months of that. Um, Incidentally just as a side note what brought what made them want to work with you guys yeah. <laughs> I don't know we emailed them and we were like this is weird and we're MIT engineers and this is what it looks like when you do a demo of this technique and wouldn't this fit well and they were like yes absolutely we'll think about it and then like it was six months before they or we could bring the money to the table from sponsors but it worked out flawlessly um, and so as that company has grown you know what are some of the things that, that you've learned about that, that you've kind of taken into public service like you've talked about this idea that you know bringing this kind of technology to the masses is really important to you and also you know that that you shouldn't have to have millions of dollars before you can start a company did you learn those things were those sort of already part of your your um philosophy on public service or did you kind of learn that through trying to start businesses and dealing with the challenges of that you know it was kind of part of my philosophy i was the president of the social justice cooperative at some point um in grad school for a couple years and um I spent a lot of time looking at foreign policy and looking at who was involved in federal government as part of foreign policy, a little bit of local and state politics. But for the most part, it was clear to me that, like, Congress was all wealthy people. If they weren't wealthy when they started, they become wealthy in government. They're not trying to minimize their power or their celebrity. They're not trying to empower people first and foremost. Empowering people is some kind of, like, political side effect to doing well. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Rather than, like, the main reason d'etre of, of politicians coming into office. So, um... I would say that I already kind of had this ethos, but not only that, that, like, I recognize that everyone has this ethos. There's, like, no one who's, like, we should only be represented by wealthy people who have special interest dollars in their pocket, right? Like, no. I think everyone stands against Citizens United. Like, something like 90-something percent of people stand against that decision. Politicians are standing against it, but everyone is wrapped up in what must be, and everyone must be pragmatic. And I guess I'm kind of saying through these businesses and through these um, political actions, like, be weird and just and community-centric first and make it work after. And that's what I learned from startups. It's like, just go and do it. It will work. Something will happen. And if I was selling lima beans right now, I'd be very wealthy. I'd buy lima beans at two cents, and I'd sell them at three cents, and I'd be fine. And the things I've learned in business would have made me an absolute killer on the lima bean market. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But instead, I'm not wealthy, and I'm in a field I like better, but the same energy can at least barely work. And in the case of Danger Awesome, not even barely work. Like, we broke even in three months, our first three months. We stayed open for four years. We used that time to double in size and grow with no investment, just based on organic growth. And now we have investors who are trying to help us grow regionally and nationally because it works, because it fits in the capitalist consumer market. 
Is that where Danger Awesome's at at this point? Like, there are investors who are trying to bring it to other, other cities? We're just beginning to do that. So we have investors who are helping us package our system and make our systems more turnkey. And then we'll have another set of investors, including some continuing investors who want to help us grow regionally and, and internationally. So there's this interesting kind of, like, interplay between what you studied and, you know... Um, what your interests just were like, I want to make animation videos and that sort of thing, and then that sort of political element to it. Um, how did people respond when, so I guess it was two years ago that you were running for city council? Yeah, running two years ago, and then now it's re-election season again, Yeah, um, which shows me just how kind of broken it is. You're always running, you're always raising right. money, you're rarely doing your job. Um, it's interesting to see that from the inside. Um, when, did people's the, when did you decide that you were going to... Run. Yeah. It was kind of on a whim. I started going to local government events. I mean, I had been going on and off for like 10 years, just like very on and off. A fundraiser here, a new candidate there. I had a sense of who the mayor was and who the counselors were, but I didn't care. And I assumed <laughs> they were doing fine. I was like, I was like all Cambridge people who were like, Cambridge is a liberal city with progressive values. When I started going, I was like, oh, okay. No one, nothing anyone says a public comment registers at all. Like nothing I've said here, my experience in education or my feel about real estate development. I just, I don't believe I've connected with a single person out there, in, in on the floor, you know. Um, and so I was like, okay, that's weird that no one comments back on what we're saying or like engages us or brings us into the conversation. Um, but then like a couple of things happened that were like very explicitly not okay. And I'm not sure I'm going to go into detail on them, but like. A politician trying to intimidate a local business person, or that happened, mm -hmm. you know, or um, you know, someone trying to keep new entrants out of an election because they they found it threatening. But like, not it wasn't like crazy legal, like territorial behavior, or like crazy like grand jury investigation intimidation or something it was just like enough to be like what country am I in for just one second mm -hmm. you know um, is this progressive Cambridge is this um, progressive Cambridge or is this like politics as I'd expect it in the corridors yeah. of power in Washington or something and I, when I decided I actually didn't decide to run right away I said one of us must run I approached a group of people I didn't even know all of them well but I said yeah. we're all like progressive people with kind of like centrist attitudes on some things and radical attitudes on other things and I, I feel that any of us could be a good consensus builder and could do a good job without rocking the boat and like making people hate common sense populist values let's make those attractive um, and, and behave nicely even as we're advocating for these changes and uh, all the people kind of said like we're all super busy we know you're even more busy but none of us can do it so let's just like wait for some vague future where someone's going to save us kind of. <laughs> and like we all acknowledge that like we know that's not going to happen or work but like what a shame that none of us could do it right now yeah. I kind of said like listen this is what's happening state city and worldwide yeah. people are saying like I'm sure it'll happen like everyone yeah. believes in this someone will make it happen someone will like, come along and save us right yeah. <laughs> so I, I decided to run I'm not saving us or saving anyone but I we won like it yeah. worked and it was really a long shot was it, it close the election yeah it was a recount there were four of us for three mm. for the bottom three spots mm -hmm. and those four were separated by like 40 votes and I won by four and then in the recount I won by 40 so like within all this 40 overall yeah and then so, so did, but so did the yeah, others right, right? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. like all four of us were still after the recount very yeah, close together so you're like trying to start up a a company and get that going it's still relatively young and as well as trying to 
have your own like grassroots campaign to get elected. Right. There's actually how two you, companies. There. How do you separate. balance that? Like, I know you studied neuroscience, but did you study your own brain? <laughs> do you have a split that says left and right, or is it just one creative business-minded brain? I think it's one creative business-minded <laughs> brain. Honestly, I've been very lucky. I think if I were smart, if I were to go back and do it again. I would say I ignored the whole like go to a job and learn from the industry you want to excel in thing. Yeah. I was like, there's no way I'm going to pick the right industry, and there's no way I'm going to be happy. So I'm just going to make my own gigs. Or it's like fit this mold or that's mold. Right. That mold. So I'm just going to make my own gigs. But if I knew now, I want to definitely end up in like rapid manufacturing. I would have spent two years learning, saving, and then I would have broken out with all those connections and started one business properly. I would have spent two years giving it my all. Mm -hmm. Then it would have been in good hands and good shape. I would have continued for three more years. Maybe I would have sold it. Maybe it would have gone under, but like it would have been the best I could do for that one focused thing. And then at like 29, I would have said, given that success or failure, now it's time for politics. Yeah. But I think the messy way life is and the fact that you don't know (laughs) where you want to go in advance, I felt like I have to shotgun everything I love and see what comes back to me. Mm -hmm. What I didn't expect is that everything would mostly succeed all at the same time. And so it took a much longer time for anything to take off. I've been doing this since I was like 25 or 26 successfully. Um, Kind of like phasing out of grad school and phasing into doing everything I love all the time. And But just like both businesses are growing right now. And and the political life of mine is taking off right now. It's so crazy because like, you know, because I knew you were doing Danger Awesome and like NimbleBot now that and like you hear about your friends and people's um, projects are doing and you know I just I don't think I expected for everything to like succeed as much as you know it has for you and like you were surprised too it's like you think like like one thing's going to go to the wayside maybe yeah. but, but or somebody really presents it. itself and you're like I'll do that yeah or pass it along oh I'm not a nimble body more but I'm doing this but you're kind of you're taking all so when we walked in you're on phone calls you're showing new people <laughs> where their offices are you're, you're going to cut a hole in that thing yeah <laughs> exactly yeah it's you, our whiteboard map yeah, yeah like you bought all this Ikea furniture yourself it's like <laughs> I don't know. You have a you have a grip. Like what? F- what fuels all that? Like you know, I have this great staff that does really well. <laughs> oh, for me personally, no. Like I think you can't attribute it to the person on top. Like if this was just me, all three of these things would have failed. Yeah. Like, very clearly. When I look at someone like Mitt Romney and his success with Bain, or any of these people who are like big names because they stood on the back of a, of a business, you can be totally sure that that person has almost no value. Like Steve Jobs, almost no value. Like all of these people, pick anyone who's a yeah. celebrity for mm-hmm. just bootstrapping their company out of nothing. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I went to Ikea <laughs> and I right. taught people how to do things and I'm trying to make it so I don't have to be in every decision and the company can scale. And like maybe that's some special knowledge I have. But every single time that this these companies could have closed, a miracle happened. Yeah. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like, I think there's just, you know, when the right client falls on you at the right time so you can expand, or yeah. when a recession gives way to new clients at the right time just so you don't go under. Yeah, you create a new service for Just them. in mm-hmm. time. Like, yeah, maybe you were clever to see it or take advantage of it or whatever, but the fact is that so many of the factors were out of your control that when you do well, it's like 10% hard work and 90% where is the growth going to come from out of my, totally out of my hands. Um, So I I have this strong, strong anti-libertarian opinion that you've got to work hard 
like the way a libertarian would say, you got to work hard, yeah. mm-hmm. and you've got to um, find the right team and the right circumstances. You've got to make your own luck, mm-hmm. but then you've got to constantly step back and be like, what are the factors happening to me? And and you know, to the greatest extent possible, how can I improve those factors? But for the most part, how can I just be thankful for the life that is happening to me? Yeah. Um, Do you have time to kind of sit back and enjoy where things stand now while you're? St- while you're also probably like thinking about where does this place me in, in five years? No. <laughs> I don't have any time to be... like I, I need to go laser cut this whiteboard mount because I might be the only person at Nimblebot who has the Danger Awesome knowledge. And right. All yeah. the Danger Awesome people are too busy to just say, do me this favor, so I don't ask <laughs> them with my personal things. Uh, so I, I'm awesome. doing all the utilitarian little things. Yeah. I hate tasking people with menial projects. Right. So like I could have said to someone, here's my shopping list, go to Ikea, this is your job. I'm going to pay you to do this, yeah. and there's some cost to going to Ikea. I mean, instead, I find myself, and I think any good boss should, clear out hurdles so that people can do their job in a way that excites them. Better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the higher up the hierarchy you go, I think the more BS that you're sorting through so others can just do their life and right. do their job. Yeah. I believe in that style of management, and I think it means that the staffs are pretty much free to do great work, but it also means that I'm tasked with an unbelievable amount of that um, sort of thing. Process, yeah. 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 What's on the What's on the on the forefront of your mind, like right now? Like, are you still trying to grow Danger Awesome? Are you still, or yeah. is Nimblebot or Council? Like, I spent the last three months at Nimblebot trying to make sure that it was a little more sustainable and hiring as we have a transition in managing directors, hiring the right managing director as a friend from uh, I've worked with in the past. Um, also hiring a good salesperson and just making sure it's sustainable. So mm-hmm. I've stepped back over the last month and it seems to be going well. I have daily creative reviews with people and that has been a really good addition to my general help of the business. And then I'm really focused on Danger Awesome and City stuff. So mm-hmm. it's re-election time, but I'm trying not to drop the ball on major projects, open data, equity and education. I'm still trying to like figure out legally why there are still challenges to a $15 minimum wage. So I'm trying to clear those out of the way. Progressive real estate tax, which could be the first real progressive tax in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. could be legal, but will take years and years of finagling. Um, all that stuff is going on in the background. Yes. And then I'm trying now to spend every day... Um, several hours at Dangerous and making sure that my mark is there. In the same way that we're doing daily creative reviews at Nimblebot, I believe we have to. I have to do um, a certain amount of daily um, kind of resetting of some like house cleaning. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Does that stuff surprise you? As in, like when you were starting and you're sort of passionate about the projects you're passionate about, when you're in more of a leadership role, and now I think more of a sort of public. Uh, in the public eye, at least around here a little bit. I mean, is that taxing to have to do more of that kind of, um, like you said, sort of the, the, the fundamental stuff or like to, to have that stuff on your plate um, as opposed to just being able to focus on what you loved about it, like say animation mm. or working on a music video. Now you have real responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do long for the part of the just like... I love these creatives who have a company that's so wildly successful that they're like, I'm actually not a CEO. I'm a this thing. And so I envy that. I'm like ready to hand over the reins of multiple things. Yeah. But, and and just have that time to make movies and like do laser cut projects. And I'd love to be that YouTube personality who's like, today we're going to like review... (laughs) 
There's yeah. like beard oil that really changed my life. Like, <laughs> I would love to tell people about the beard oil that changed my life. Um, but I have no time to keep... Here's a venue. <laughs> right now. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that I no longer get um, uh, these rashes on my neck. <laughs> um, when you were uh, starting off politically, I mean, you were pretty involved in the Occupy Boston movement. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did that start? What was your involvement in that? And... Uh, what did you learn from that experience? I mean, do you still sort of believe in the sort of major tenets of that yeah. organization? Yeah, what's really interesting is that people say, like, okay, but it didn't succeed, right? It was like, succeed in what? Like, violent overthrow of the government? Or, like, peaceful <laughs> transition of power to a new just system? No, it's like, succeeded in electing Elizabeth Warren, who would have, right. like, had no platform for change without that popular movement. Mm-hmm. Um, probably succeeded in electing a lot of other local politicians who now have a, a common language for, like, real... Uh, reasonable and common sense populist change. Um, I went out to Occupy because I heard that something was happening in Boston like what we were hearing about in Zuccotti Park in New York, and I was there at the beginning, to my surprise. I never figure out, I never find out about things at the beginning. And I I was making observations that astonished me that needed to be made in a grassroots organization. I was like, okay, you guys want to start in three days, who's going to pull two all-nighters? in the next three days yeah. to make sure we finish that amount of work. So we did that at Danger Awesome. Mm-hmm. The all-nighters that made Occupy Boston happen on a fast timeline needed a home for a couple of days. And then, like, needed lists and needed email and needed IT and then, like, needed a communications hub. So there was, like, a communications team I tried to train up that would go between the different departments in Occupy Boston. And for a while, it functioned pretty well in a pretty regimented way in a very, like, manual, non automated but pretty structured Mm -hmm. sense and I felt like okay I contributed some of that and others contributed some of that and we're training each other how to appear on the media and how to expand our ranks through outreach and PR all of these political experiences of mine have felt like entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. starting as a city councilor and getting a small staff feels like entrepreneurship um Starting Occupy, um, and I don't mean personally, I mean with hundreds of people, um, felt like a a different distributed type of entrepreneurship that, like, functions in a more amorphous, self-guided way. Um, And that was very instructive. What was devastating about Occupy is that because we all wanted to keep our own attitude out of the goal setting and stuff, I think we, we kept the goals as far as the public was concerned, we kept the goal somewhat more amorphous than I would have liked. Too broad. It's not just too broad. It's like we weren't willing to say, like, here's 25 points that summarize everything we can think of. Mm-hmm. Or here's 125 mm-hmm. points that summarize everything we can think of. Instead, we said, like, you know what we're talking about, right? right? Yeah, right. You know things are messed up, right? And that was right. actually like, good enough for me at the time. But I realized in retrospect that even though people, quote unquote, knew what we were talking about, they needed a call to action yeah. and they needed to know that their specific four out of five major points were represented mm-hmm. in order to feel included. And that because was a lot of frustration with people and, and the public just yeah. not knowing like okay, what what is the main goal here? Right. right. <laughs> like, and the main goal seemed so obvious to me. It's like we have some crippling student loan debt that's surpassing like subsequent to Occupy it yeah. surpassed uh, credit card debt for the first time. And it's the only type of debt you can't get out of. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't declare bankruptcy and, and get away from this debt. It will follow yeah. you forever. Um, because you tried to educate yourself and improve the economy yeah. of, this, of this country. <laughs> like, you tried to do the right people. thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm sitting with my business hat on, and I'm like, no, a young graduate has no value to me. Like, right. your college right. degree is meaningless, right. and you should have spent that time figuring out what you're passionate about. Right. 
but instead we sign up for these like between liberal arts and professional programs that purport to teach us something, but but maybe sometimes don't. I would say right. elite colleges do, and others others. And then on top of that, good luck with your seventy five thousand dollars of debt with right, yeah, irrespective of what type of college, right? And I think it's a shame that we that I could actually say that maybe elite colleges do a better job than like third or fourth tier community mm-hmm. colleges, where where we should actually be able to go to the 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 curricula and say like this person will be a star mechanic and will be able to afford a house in Cambridge. Um, So, so we basically have that type of situation (laughs) at at Occupy. And, and what astonished me is that I think people needed a very well articulated set of, of those points. And and what also surprised me is that I think any one of us could have given you those points. Mm -hmm. Any one of the hundreds or thousands of people who came through could have rattled off like the top five. Um, and it, we just needed, I mean, certainly maybe this isn't common knowledge, but Occupy was shut down as part of a federally coordinated effort. Mm -hmm. There were federal white house, congressional and other task forces talking about how are we going to make sure that all of this shuts down nationwide? Because this is scary. Mm -hmm. This is instability. This is aimless instability. It's not even good instability. I know, you know, that's untrue. With a little extra time and with a little less government pressure, we would have been um, in better shape, and I think we would have probably turned the corner eventually. What um, well, that made me realize is kind of what they tell you when you're talking to a reporter. Just say exactly what you mean to say because they're going to take you out of context. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like with something like Occupy, just be perfectly organized because they <laughs> will bring the helicopters and they will bring the balaclavas mm-hmm. and the batons and they will beat that elderly old man. Yeah. I have that footage, by the way. Yeah. Um, when they're taking you down. And um, you can't just say, oh, like if the government had been more just, we would have been fine. Right. Um, we would have gotten there eventually. It's like, no, like now I'm realizing if you have a startup or if you have a, a movement, you have to start it perfectly. Yeah. Right. Clearly sort of define the People are drawn to that. No one likes anarchy. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, I guess a lot of people do like anarchy, but yeah. if you're going to be anarchist, I guess the take home is be anarchist with a very clear right. message. Yeah. <laughs> are you saying that that was kind of obscured or the idea never really crystallized in terms of, the, you know, the, like you said, the five or the ten or the fifteen talking points because sort of the the philosophy behind the movement seemed to be like it was supposed to be leaderless or it was supposed to be or leaderful everyone's supposed to be a leader no one's supposed to project their personal aims into the into the mass um trajectory and and like we'll Ouija board our way to a better future (laughs) you know and like it's like yeah like if that could have been a political action kind of come um like food and housing camp for 20 years, the end of that 20 years would have been like, this is a massive, well-funded, community-oriented, leaderful movement that affects massive voting and um, participati- like civic participation change. But in like six months, you can't get there. Right. And so that vision was beautiful, but it needed more longevity and it needed more oomph. And frankly, you know, we went from a situation where 10% or 20% of people were doing massive amounts of homework at the beginning to the numbers swelling and the amount of community service and food organizing and food justice going on swelling and the amount of mental health swelling, um, mental health issues to the point where like maybe two or 3% of people were doing regular homework and 5% of people were doing like we're being saddled with these extra burdens and, and then 
if you're not at, at least 10% of people being effective, I think your organization is probably overburdened. <laughs> what, um, going from that uh, back to sort of your work in public service and in Cambridge, I mean, what has surprised you the most about either, well, first, you know, what surprised you the most about the city council that you work with and what has surprised you the most about the um, electorate? Like yeah. The, the, the people who voted you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when, when we were hanging out, like, a couple months ago, it's like we're in the shop. You're, you're a little bit of a celebrity on this street, literally. Like, we're walking, <laughs> we're at Life Alive, and three people come up and they want to talk to you about, like, some parking situation, you know? So, yeah. like, those details never seem to be far from your plate. What was it, What are those issues that have surprised you the most about the residents? And, and yeah, like, what, what surprised you about the people you've, you've worked with in the council? Um, I think I am surprised about how much I can get done and how much radical stuff I can get done, even with the current council. Like these are not unradical people. I think what's also surprised me is that the way conversations happen and the way planning happens is a lot more haphazard than I thought. And so things kind of happen when they're apt to happen, or mm-hmm. things kind of happen when people get outraged, but it's a very reactive system. The idea that we would plan for the city we want, like in a comprehensive way, um, is... Um, not as much in in effect. And the degree of community engagement. Like, I would have thought that in this day and age, you would have a very comprehensive social media and newsletter, e-newsletter organizing effort. And to supplement that, you would have an enormous outreach effort for door knocking. Like, we have a community conversation. We will hit every Mm -hmm. household in Cambridge. Like, the census does it. You know, every 10 years, the federal government spins up an organization that meets everyone. Right. Okay, that's crazy, right? Well, we're 100,000 people. We're not even a million people, right? We should be able to hit every household whenever we want to, like by owl or by carrier pigeon or by internet or by door knocking or whatever magic you want to use to bring your message to people and get them engaged. This should be a solved problem in 2015. And I was amazed that it's not only not solved. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen on a very basic level. Right keeps people disenfranchised, it disempowers communities with uh, existing leadership who want to be involved but maybe don't feel invited or feel actively excluded, whether or not they should. And I was, like, surprised how latent the interest in engagement was, how latent the interest in educational equity was, how latent the interest in um, transit safety was, whether you're a person who drives or you're a person who bikes. And they might conflict, but they both want the same thing. Um, I was surprised how everyone wants affordable housing, but some people say build luxury to build affordable, and other people are saying build all affordable and luxury is a red herring. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised that these conflicts never get resolved. Like, no one actually says... Here's the debate about whether we go this way or this way, and that's it. Like, I would go either way, but we need to pick a direction and do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, neither way has been doing properly. Uh, <laughs> we haven't been doing either way properly. So, I, you know, I would say a lot of the solutions are common sense, are very agreeable, um, that the solutions are before us, and that for the most part there's just not a large civic group large voter group or a large polit- like group of policymakers coming together to say this is the roadmap and this is how we'll get better and this is the 20 year vision instead it's like here's how I'm going to get elected next time and here's what I claim I did that maybe I didn't totally do myself and as someone else's good work that I'm yeah. Putting on and my then I'm good for literature, and, a half. and I'm yeah, good for maintaining the seat. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I, that's like a little too cynical because people are doing really good yeah. work. But I don't think anyone would argue that there's a 20 year plan for Cambridge. Yeah, on in any department or in any way, no. there's no 20 year plan, and that means that you can never have economic equity. 
right? Because, like, educating people to be good citizens 20 years from now means that you have to create curricula that are contextual and that are 20 years in length. You can't predict that far. You can't predict what the jobs will be. You can't predict what the market will be. You can't predict where China will be. But you could try, and we I don't think we as Americans do. I don't think there's a 20-year plan anywhere. So if we were to look at like one of those issues that I think probably like for people that listen to our podcast sometimes, you know, it's like creative people who live in urban areas here mostly, but (laughs) maybe other urban areas as well. And like, you know, so you've worked a lot on affordable housing. Like what is that? um, Just those two ideas that you took. I mean, I know it's probably a longer like policy discussion than we have time for it, but like what is... um, what are what would a proposal be for that solution? What are some of the issues around affordable housing? Why Great. is there not... What, what's the problem? One of my favorite <laughs> topics. So you have San Francisco, you have New York, you have Chicago. I mean, you just have a lot of places where real estate is very expensive. Right, and in right. Cambridge, it may be as expensive or more expensive than other places that would blow... Like, it would blow mm-hmm. your mind if Cambridge was as expensive as Manhattan or mm-hmm. as expensive as San Francisco. But, like, it's, it's really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that affordable housing developers are waiting for a down market. That sucks. It basically means that when we're all hurting bad, they might be able to make a few affordable units. Mm-hmm. Um, Withholding the building, basically. Well, or just grabbing the buildings that are coming up bankrupt or, or coming back onto the market because some real estate developer who is planning to build luxury now, like now can't. Or something. And the market now is going up. And the market is going up forever. Yeah. Yeah. So the cost now for a market rate um, apartment is like between twenty two hundred and thirty two hundred dollars per bed. Yeah, <laughs> per bed. So if you're building a new tower right now and you're claiming that you're doing something for affordable, chances are what you mean is that you're making an inclusionary percentage. Right now in Cambridge, that percentage is eleven point five to eleven point eight percent. It means that whenever you build ninety luxury units and you bring in those big dollars to offset the cost of your project, like that percentage, yeah, that percentage yeah. will that eleven point eight percent. Those like eleven apartments or something will go to, um, to to people on a certain list, probably between sixty and eighty percent of area median income. Mm-hmm. Um, Which that's not enough, nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And the waiting list is eight years long, and we just had to suspend part of the waiting list so we could like. Shuffle people around and like actually revamp buildings that desperately need it. And, I mean, it's just we're in a crazy system. Like, why not guarantee housing and guarantee a minimum income mm-hmm. and say like that's the thing we do first? Society can't function unless we collect enough taxes to do that. And then once we've taken care of that, all the costs of healthcare, all the costs of housing, all these costs that we're paying anyway will be offset in a major way because we'd planned properly. Um, what you actually have to do is instead of planning properly or you know, taking out giant government loans or whatever it is that would have happened to plan, you have to kind of create a one-year solution. So, like, here's a one-year solution. You take mansion properties all over Cambridge that are zoned for one domicile, and you buy them cheap because they're only zoned for one domicile. And then you create a law where on any mansion property, zoning doesn't apply. Just going to split them up. Yeah, exactly. Zoning doesn't apply, but only if it's all affordable. Mm -hmm. Or only if it's affordable and moderate. Or only if it has 10% artist housing, 20% workforce housing, and 70% affordable housing. With a a capital A. It's actually a a specific designation. Mm -hmm. Right. That would be great. And that would be affordable. And the developers who want to do that, nonprofits who believe that that's their mission, actually could afford to do that if you make it so that they're not competing on even footing with other developers that just want to go big. Or with personal interests who want to buy a mansion. You have to be able to give a leg up to those affordable uses. That's one like really easy short-term stopgap that we could do, but it's politically infeasible because my colleagues don't. don't and so, and that doesn't happen now. That 
No, that does not happen. No, that solution doesn't happen. You literally, if you want to build affordable, have to build luxury, and then you have to think about um, hmm. you have to think about whether the gentrification and displacement due to a luxury tower yeah. will actually ever be offset by the inclusionary housing. What mm-hmm. I mean by that is mm-hmm. you could build 100 units of luxury housing. Now, all of the affordable housing units that were in the neighborhood where people are saying, like, as a good citizen, I'm going to make this available at a lower cost. Now some of them are saying, I'm a sucker if I can make this available at a lower cost. I'm across the street from that monstrosity. Right, yeah. I could be charging 2200 right. I'm going to go from 600 to 2200 and now you got 10 units, but you lost 100 mm-hmm. You know, and so actually... And there's the bidding wars over the places, too. Absolutely. <laughs> and you get more developers trying to force people out and build more towers. It's like a... it's it's a never-ending kind of cycle onwards and upwards that, that displaces communities. And But, like, more importantly totally offsets the types of proportions and per- percentages that once made this community diverse socioeconomically and racially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that is the situation and because developers are a special interest with dollars and with political clout, they're able to say, if you don't do it our way, not only will there not be affordable housing, not only will you not be reelected, but you will actually fully destroy the economy of the city and there will be no turning back. Right. Right? What politician wants to look at the threat of being the reason that the economy yeah. crumbled mm-hmm. and, 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 won't, and won't buckle? Then you have people like me who are like, I don't believe you. Your threats don't work here. I've heard a sa- the same version of that threat from everyone who has a dollar in right. that race. And so it's like it's not plausible anymore. I don't believe that yeah. this is the way to create an equitable and just society. The boogeyman. The yeah. boogeyman. Like whenever anyone does that in normal life, I think average people like step back and say like you're trying to take advantage of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, when you're in office, people believe that that type of threat will actually move the conversation. And that's what I mean when I say that politics is obsessed with plausible but not true arguments. Mm -hmm. It is plausible that the economy would crumble if we do this. It's plausible that because families are leaving our neighborhood that we have to build this luxury tower so that people can have a place to live. But it's not true because we're not creating enough good units where they can live. It's not true because the waiting list is eight years long, so if they're leaving the neighborhood, they're not going to be saved by this project. So we now have politicians who are saying a plausible argument in, in favor of something that's generically good, more housing for people who deserve it, but it's not true because that's not how it will actually work out, and it's how, not how it has ever worked out. And we don't have a citizenry or a set of residents um, who is accustomed to holding people accountable to what's true mm-hmm. and to what's demonstrated in the data. So, given that, I mean, do you feel? I mean, and that's just one issue, you know, in in a handful of them. Um, being in office has that made you more hopeful or more cynical based on? Oh, more hopeful. It's yeah. like easy. We, like this would be easy if we dropped what we were doing for an hour a week or an hour a month, and we got together, we, the people, the common sense, and said, I demand a constitutional convention that reallocates like power and process based on a constitution that actually represents people. If we got together and said a $15 minimum wage is a no-brainer for this country and will not destroy the economy, but will in fact be the only thing that saves it from slipping slowly into recession after recession, into eventually a depression, and into a losing battle with China. If we had an emphasis on education rather than military industrial complex and war, um, if we maybe even got enough like radical energy together to have a guaranteed minimum income and realize that we will save money on preventative health care, preventative and transitional housing and other things if we just gave people a few dollars, that we would save money, that we would stimulate the economy, that we would actually have a bailout, but for the people. 
Um, if we could do any of those things, let alone all of those things, um, we would have a fundamentally better and more just country tomorrow, and it would take almost no time from the average person. But what makes you more hopeful that that could happen? Yeah. Because we did it for my campaign. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm trying to encourage other people to run, because they're saying, yeah, that makes common sense to me, too. Yeah. Um, have you any other cities, or talk, talk to any other council members from like New York, or yeah. know anyone who's like... Young and doing something different. I mean, Kishama Swan is like the famous and like more effective and more brilliant version of what I'm trying to do. And she's in Seattle, and I see her success, and I see her work with $15 minimum wage, and I'm like, okay, someone else has the same tack and uh, potentially a bigger city and a larger platform, and maybe even a, a, a more intelligent approach. And she's doing it. And if I'm doing it, and I met this mayor from Connecticut who's doing it, and there's Bernie Sanders who started in Burlington, Vermont. Now he's running for president and Warren one day and it's like okay there's these little pockets of light where someone said screw the movement I can do this and then I'm going to talk to others and then it's like okay we all did that simultaneously Yeah. okay so there's 8 of us there's 12 of us or maybe actually there's thousands of us yeah. right and that we're all thinking and doing this simultaneously and it's become apparent to me that like the numbers are large and the latent energy is real, and so what makes me hopeful is that there's gonna there's mm-hmm. gonna be a big shift. There needs to be a big shift, and it's now so common sense and so basic that when you invite someone, the first conversation you say you should run for office, they say, "Oh yeah, no, I'm a behind the scenes person." Yeah. And then the second conversation, they say, wow, behind-the-scenes people actually do need to be in politics. Yeah. And like, the fact that I'm not driven by ego could be cool. And then they talk to some friends, and the third conversation, they say, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. That makes me hopeful. Mm-hmm. If, if I can do that in Cambridge based on the like, lucky break that I got, and if you know, Kasami Swat can do that in, in um, Seattle... And if hundreds of artists can, like, dip out of life for a couple of years and make powerful art and still survive, like, the ingredients are here for a massive, nonviolent, populist movement that will bring us things that were so basic in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, just switching gears, I wanted to ask about, uh, so there was an article last week in The Globe that had you on the front page with some other young leaders of the area and talking about, I guess it was a different... Uh, it was, it was certainly different publicity for young Muslims than we usually see in Boston yeah. and in this country. Um, what I mean, I don't really know your relationship to, like, when you were growing up, were you very religious? Were you really involved in yeah. your local mosque? And, uh, and, you know, what do you think an article like that can do to sort of educate people about, if we can use the word mainstream uh, Islam, mainstream Muslims. Yeah, I mean, but, so before we talk about my religious upbringing and identity, I'd like to say this is a perfect example of I, I thought I'd do my part, and it turns out everyone else was doing their part at the same time. So I kind of got a little disaffected by the organizing in my community 10 years ago when I was in college, and I was the president of the Muslim Students Association in undergrad for a couple of years, and or maybe for a year. But the, the part that was annoying to me is that we had all these powerful young minds who were being held back by leaders who cared about either ego or in some cases just weren't terribly good at organizing their resources and I felt like we as young people have good ideas, include us, engage us and maybe not intentionally, we were just left out in the cold and over that ten years people were engaging I was engaging in running for office and starting a group called Mass Muslims and the Council for American Islamic Relations was revitalizing a Massachusetts chapter and the Muslim Justice League that is kind of like ACLU and political advocacy and support 
um, but for, for Muslim causes and for Muslim constituents was getting a Harvard grant and starting their work up. And all this materialized in the last year. And so seeing that critical mass, I think that's what the reporter noticed. It's like all of a sudden there's all of you and you right. didn't even coordinate, but now you're coordinated. Um, and mm. That, to me, illustrates our prior point better than anything else, just in a smaller, more hyper-local context that right. like everyone's doing the right thing. And when you come together, it creates a lot of exposure and a lot of kind of common sense appeal. Um, I, just for what it's worth, yeah. all of those groups are about social justice for the wider society, but organizing Muslim voices to commit to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the upbringing stuff is fairly straightforward. I, I always lived in a fairly religious household. I prayed five times a day. I still pray five times a day. Um, and although I think I'm a more liberal, more understanding, tolerant, and fundamentally experimental human being now... Um, those tenets are deep in me and the practice is awaken me every day and these are things I believe in and, and actually the more I talk to like milita- like militant atheists or people from other faiths the way I put my faith in context makes people <laughs> had an atheist the other day say to me okay I always thought of God as a man in the clouds but when you talk to me about a being outside of time and talk to me about like reality kind of being like a computer simulation or something and we talked about the physics of it and the, the nature of, of, I think, how Muslims believe God is. The person was like, okay, then I might be an, uh, a believer in the way that you're a believer. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I don't think I can, like, made this person a monotheist, but right. I think I made them believe about, like, structure and, like, some Muslim version of intelligent design <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in the way that I do. Small success. But, but, I, but, like, I guess my point is um, I've always had an interesting spiritual and kind of Gnostic um, relationship with the religion and and um, it's been very powerful for me to step back and realize that like what we do is dust and what we do is um temporary and that we have to do our best like in like Camus the plague or something we have to like do our best make the most of your time even though the circumstances are always kind of going to be oriented against you yeah what what kind of bothers you the most about the way that uh that i guess young muslims in particular have kind of been portrayed in this country yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So we have a media circus that goes on in this country, and every, like, 20 years, there's a different bad guy in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, it was uh, black Americans. And um, for a little while in the media, it was, like, Russians and the Cold War right. and, like, the essentializing of another, an- another, mm-hmm. uh, others. And um, I'm almost surprised we don't see through it anymore. There was this, uh, I think it was Jamie Foxx, I can't remember, I can never find this YouTube clip, but around 9-11, there's one of my favorite black comedians, I think it was Jamie Foxx, I remember being really disappointed in liking him, (laughs) and he was like, thank God it's not us, and then he went on like 10 minutes of like really racist stuff, Mm -hmm. and it was like, you know, you can see the handover of being in the crosshairs from the black community to, it's not like the black community is not still in the crosshairs, right? right? But it's just like the media circus is now allowed to say racist things on air about only a handful of groups and the majority of that overtly racist talk has now shifted. And like, you still have implicit racism and you still have discrimination and structural inequality, but like, when can you say something, when can you equate a human being to an animal on air only if they're Muslim Um, now like there's only one group where you're allowed to literally say maybe these people are animals on air Um, so that sucks 
obviously. I mean, that happened to me when we were talking about Israel-Palestine on the radio in 2006, and a major interfaith organizer um, for the greater Boston area said, but you have to realize that there's a predilection towards violence in these communities. And I'm like, are you saying that Palestinians are intrinsically, like in their DNA, more likely to commit violence? And he said, yes. Mm-hmm. And like that happened in 2006 or right. seven or something on the radio. Like that's not how violence works. Violence is tied into socioeconomic inequality yeah. and then to struggle and to mental health and social health and economic health and all of these other things. And you're going to sit here and tell me that Palestinians just are fundamentally less deserving of economic opportunity than Israelis? So we're in this weird place, and what upsets me is that racism is still possible. Not like possible out there on the edges with the crazies. Like, racism is still possible at the heart of our media and journalism experience. And with your interactions with other people of your faith, I mean, do you find that those kind of stereotypes that are being made by mainstream media, like... Does it does it cause, if you could say a majority, like to engage and fight against those stereotypes, or to draw back and react more angrily to? Oh, the people? it's the latter by far. And it's not and even that's, anger. That's scary, right? It's not even anger. I'll tell you what it is because we're still doing it. We're still on this handoff from like the forty and fifty and sixty somethings to the twenty and thirty somethings. And um, in that handoff, there's still a number of people who have enough clout that when something happens, our response has to be, don't touch that, don't get engaged, don't fight back, you'll just get hoodwinked. And it's like, no, racism is happening to us. I can fight that on the air. I can say something succinctly and obviously enough, and I, I tend to, I get good feedback when I go on the air, that like people will realize that you've got to take this issue as more complex than just, are Muslims bad? Mm-hmm. And... Um, there's still there's still this entire overriding and overarching attitude in the community that like if we engage with that, with this we will just get further demonized and like the smaller group of us that's fighting this is actually very successful mm-hmm. and when we turn that tide to say like you can't talk to human beings like that that's just not nice you can't say that you're a nice and impartial journalist and and talk to a human like that um that very basic approach, I think, is beginning to, um, both in the Black Lives Matter and in some of the Muslim organizing we do, beginning to turn the tide in the media narrative about inequality and um, uh, security. Um, and the last thing on this topic, I guess, for me is just like, as a public figure who speaks, you know, it's not a, I, I wouldn't say it's a central part of your, of your public identity, but obviously as uh, a Muslim, do you are you more comfortable now, sort of speaking on behalf of like young Muslims or um, addressing these issues when they come up, or have you always been pretty comfortable addressing those issues? I mean, my problem is this: like, I always actually assume I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone. I'm just like kind of saying some yeah. common sense stuff, and if it resonates with the viewer, great. But increasingly. <laughs> Actually, just once in the last two years, I had someone joke two years jokingly say about some headline I was in, like, thank thank you for speaking on behalf of all Muslims, and they kind of smiley-faced at it, and it's like, I didn't even realize that the interviewer's tone was, this is the message, like, this is right. the way it is, um, and, and I was more cognizant of saying, like, this is just one man's opinion when I was talking on behalf of Occupy, and I somehow lost that sensitivity mm-hmm. when I got more into office and more into roles where I was expected to represent a larger mm-hmm. population. Yeah. So I'm now, like, after I getting that comp- com- comment and getting it in a way that was actually 
encouraging and, and like kind of jovial or genial a couple weeks ago I'm also like stepping back and asking like to what extent should I be a representative and to what extent should I just be some guy and, and I think the latter is important I, one of my assumptions about politics is that as you do it it will corrupt you that like power does corrupt absolutely and not because the power or the positions are corrupted but because you have to start focusing on things that make you think about yourself and your opinions and your um electability and stuff mm-hmm. uh, constantly and um, I think because those are inherent to the process we should name them recognize them and create um, offsets for them term limits would be a great offset um, are you still going to stick to to yours yeah mine is a self-imposed uh, two or three year uh, two or three term um, term limit you get pension at ten years which is five terms mm-hmm. um, that's very short and very attractive city councilors here yeah get pension after ten oh yeah and you get paid like it's full time even though you work like it's part time what um, is the pension it, it, the pension I think would be a fraction of the salary the salary is like 70 and it's like for the rest of your life well I think it's at retirement age <laughs> excuse me but um, I mean that's why so many of our municipalities are underwater because right. they have all these health care burdens and all these pension burdens that are actually not that realistic for some of the people who have been serving um at any rate my, my point is that we if we can name these kind of structural corrupting influences the people aren't corrupt the structure corrupts and if we can name those things have campaign finance have community discussions about how we as individuals are doing in our in our souls and our hearts if we can name those things and and make our responses to that type of action productive and not defensive we could actually help the humans in office become the better humans they mean to be. Um, unfortunately, that's untouchable because someone says, like, hey, you've been office, in office for 20 years and I've seen how you've changed, is like an intrinsically violent statement. Like, I'm committing violence against mm-hmm. you by telling you that you've changed and probably in yeah. a bad way. Right. However, if we had a plan for doing this as we go and giving people earnest, meaningful, and, and appreciated commentary, then the person could, as they go, do a better job. For me, yes, limiting myself to two or three terms and hoping that I can actually limit it to just two terms. So this would be my only re-election campaign, and my hope is actually to minimize further, to the greatest extent, this uh, project and to use my my last term to train others, and and, uh, not just for Cambridge, but for the Do you think you'll make the change that you... Um, want to in those years? I think I've already made the changes that I meant yeah. to. I, I showed people it's possible. I got a million dollars for out-of-school time equity and coordinating um, in within my first two months, and it, mm. it was passed into the budget a few months after that. Mm. Um, I'm beginning to figure out how that money, with others, other stakeholders, how that money will be um, allocated and applied. And um, my strong feeling is that one term is enough, two terms is really good, and that this common this common <coughs> mantra that like you need to be in for a while and that's the only way you can be effective, I think yeah. is uh, is a joke. Um, so, this, so this podcast is called Be Brave, and I was wondering if like with all your endeavors, like do you do you fear fear failure in any way, or do I don't, you, don't even feel failure. I don't fear failure because I kind of embrace it, and we're always failing. Little things all the time, mm-hmm. um, so I've become kind of immune. And I, I used to teach this class at school, the Museum of Fine Arts, and a version of it at MIT as well, where I was like, and there were a bunch of things. Yeah, can I swear on this? Yeah, yeah. There was a bunch of things I used, to, I used to say, like, no one wants to steal your shitty idea, and like, you know, I would say, go out and raise 
a dollar, crowdfund a dollar, five cents at a time, but you're not allowed to give anyone any value. And it's like, you're going to fail a lot if you take that mentality towards your entrepreneurship, but it's going to be good failure. Uh What is uh, challenging is that, uh, you know, when I ran, there was a moment where I was like, I can't win. No one can win their first time. This is too stressful. I'm doing too much. And I almost quit. Like, I thought about it. Is my small change enough? Or will I do what I want to do in those times? Like, will I be the best counselor I can? Like, do you have those doubts and yeah absolutely I do and I I was just trying to bring it to a point to say like I actually thought about quitting like I wasn't going to do it and I've thought about like you know shuttering Danger Awesome in the early days when it was just too difficult and I've thought about like leaving from Nimblebot and just seeing if it can fly on its own even though I know it needs a few more months or years of me just like pushing it gently before it truly expands even though it's still growing and it's like I I have all these opportunities to just do less and I'm saying like I'm actually going to go till I burn out, and I can. I believe I can do this much stuff for three more years, and as long as I show up and I know I've done my best, whether I succeed or fail, that's my commitment, and that's the amount of energy I have, and that's the amount of, like, I believe that's both fair to me as a human that deserves some relaxation at some point eventually, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also believe it's fair to the business ideas and to the movements I'm trying to start to right. do it that way. Nice. Cool. Okay. Thanks, Nadine. Yeah, this is awesome. Really it was appreciate great conversation. It. We'll Thank be back you. in a minute. That's Nadine Mazin on the Be Brave podcast. That's the show for this week. Thanks to Nadine Mazin for sitting down with us and chatting. What a great dude he is. Thanks to Christy Lorenzo, the co-founder of the podcast, and to Nathan Hess, our web designer extraordinaire. My name is David Tanklavsky. Visit us online anytime at BeBravePodcast.com and find us on the iTunes App Store. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>